Hello. Welcome to the second part of a special expanded edition of Knowledge on the Go, the podcast brought to you by the Performance Improvement Collaborative and Knowledge Transfer Teams at Vizient. I'm your host, Marilyn Sherrill. In this episode, Dr. Tom Spiegel, Medical Director for the University of Chicago's Emergency Department, and Dr. Marty Lucenti, Senior Vice President and CMO, Solution Architecture at Vizient, discuss operational strategies and reimbursement payer models that will shape the future of emergency medicine. Tom, the public mostly uses emergency departments to get immediate care for issues they have right now, from discomfort to life-threatening. Is that how organizations view the primary role of the emergency department? I think overall, there's really two views of the emergency department when we're talking about, is it a separate service line or not? It's a yes or no are, are the two options. If you view the emergency department as an independent service line, I think most hospitals that do this view this as not necessarily a place of growth, but a place where it's kind of a required necessity, an evil necessity. That's a money pit. They have to do it because of federal regulations. uh, And we have to, of course, have a place for ambulances to go. And it's a place where truly life-saving interventions are, are had. But it isn't a place of growth. And it's an independent service line that's required to be there. The alternate point of view, which is if the emergency department is the front door into your healthcare system, then you could start to open up more possibilities in terms of driving patient growth into other service lines. So once the patient is at your door, do they need to get additional services? Do they need a stress test, a cardiac cath? Uh, Do they need any additional vascular studies for stroke or TIA patients? If you change the mindset at an executive level, you go from this necessary evil uh, money pit point of view to an uh, an open door to your system where you could actually drive other service lines. I often characterize the two phases of a hospital executive. The first phase of most hospital executives, especially in the urban setting, is they tend to look at the emergency room as its own service line, and they see it exactly the way Tom described. This is not the subpopulation and service line that they intend to grow. Often in the first phase of a hospital executive's career, falls very much in line with behavioral health. It's sort of a non-desired, necessary, evil sort of approach to that service line. What you then find is phase two of a hospital executive's career, which is they quickly discover that if you take that first phase, what you will find is that all of your headaches come from an undercapacity ER. And you start to realize that if I want to grow transplant, if I want to grow oncology, if I want to grow some of these specialized service lines, those patients don't come to the emergency less than the regular population. They actually come more. What you often see is that second phase of a hospital executive's career, they kind of realize, I'm going to attack this capacity demand mismatch because it's going to alleviate the singular point where all of my failures tend to consolidate. And if I really do want to grow many of these service lines that are incredibly lucrative, the neuro service lines, cardiovascular service lines, oncology service lines, orthopedic service lines. Those service lines to be effective need a very high functioning, readily available emergency room to function as that acute diagnostic center as patients go through the life cycle of their, you know, their illness. The perspective actually defines the resourcing uh, oftentimes, especially, once again, in some of those urban areas. That sounds like the emergency department could have a larger function within an organization. 
theoretically taking on other roles, including capacity management. Tom, how do you position the ED to serve as a support system to route patients towards other service lines? You know, I think the best way the ED can support capacity management is by getting the patients to appropriate sites of care. And I think the system can actually support itself as well as the ED in doing that. Between education efforts to patients, between offering alternate sites of care, whether that is telehealth, whether that's expanded urgent care hours, or even expanding clinic hours, uh, I think that they could really help each other out by having appropriate sites of care for the patients for when they need care. The easy answer is send everybody to the emergency department. If it's late in the afternoon uh, on, a, on a Wednesday and you want to get out of the office, well, the patient needs extra care, send them to the ER. Well, not only is that adding volume, maybe sometimes unnecessary volume to the emergency department, it's also impacting all the other patients in the emergency department. So whereas one patient may uh, be offloaded to the ED, then other patients within a practice group can be affected by a couple of patients being referred to the emergency department. So I think really the ED can support the, the system by getting our patients to the appropriate levels of care within the institution and within our healthcare system. And the system can support the ED by expanding access and uh, increased education efforts. We talked in the first podcast a little bit about the first generation of emergency medicine was about that reliability of the individual care encounter. The next generation will be about uh, you know, developing reliability of the, of, of the entire care system and making sure that everybody that shows up gets high-quality, timely, patient-satisfying care. You're starting to see that emergency rooms and emergency medicine providers are really starting to take the lead in implementing and using operations management methodologies to solve their problem and their capacity problem. Emergency rooms are transitioning from emergency rooms to acute diagnostic centers. We're seeing emergency rooms moving into being the, the fast track for the inpatient side by, by owning more and more of that observation medicine space. To get to a, being a really high-quality acute diagnostic center, you've got to really truly commit yourself, much more focused on expanding capacity to meet demand, not just the demand of emergent care, but for all sorts of diagnostic care. And then you're starting to see that emergency rooms, if they've truly got enough capacity to meet those primary demands of emergency care, secondary demands of really getting to diagnostic answers, you can actually even move into that third category, which is moving into public health and really looking at can the emergency room as a common entry point into the healthcare system. If you can solve the capacity demand mismatch problem by addressing the capacity as opposed to rationing demand, you can really start to have your ER play an incredibly valuable role. If you asked providers in the community how to get somebody directly admitted, most of them couldn't even tell you all the different care services in there. I know at many academic medical centers, there's not one oncology service. You're often finding that the only people that really know all the admission services, all of the community out, you know, community site care settings, all the specialty clinic hours, the keepers of that system configuration understanding resides in the emergency room. And somehow systems are actually taking that and creating capacity management centers first for their hospital, but then for the broader health system. And what you're seeing is more and more and more the leadership in that context tends to be uh, providers in the emergency medicine space. That means emergency medicine providers will have to adjust and take on different roles. 
Tom, how can you prepare those providers for that shift in focus? I think it goes back to making things easier for the providers. So I, specifically what I'm referring to is that if you see the ED as the front door to your healthcare system, and it's an opportunity to get the patient into other service lines, then is there a way to have the emergency department help schedule services? You know, Can they schedule a, a stress test after hours? Can you get a vascular study, if not done immediately, can you get it prepared for the next morning? Can you make it easy to schedule some of these services that you're after in terms of going after this desired growth? And without barriers of you know, having patients take the onus of calling uh, different clinics in the morning, that may not happen. Their knowledge may not be there. It's just cumbersome to do so. So I think one of the biggest opportunities is to make it easier for the emergency department team to help patients continue on on this desired growth, uh, accessing uh, additional services within a healthcare system. In addition, I think some of the things from a patient perspective can help from a technology standpoint. You know, would patients uh, have an easier time within the emergency department, just not even just waiting, but their, their overall experience if they knew what to expect? If uh, they have six lab tests and two radiology studies, you know, can they see where they are in, in progress of these results uh, and having a better understanding as far as setting expectations and where they are in the process? Some folks, you know, that are looking at emergency medicine as a service line actually will, will lump it into a service line that kind of reflects convenient, urgent, uh, and emergent care and kind of look at it that way. When you look at the, you know, health system strategy on some of those things, you know, it's important to realize is where you get your care in certain contexts really does determine where you're likely to get high-end care and high-dollar, high-service line, you know, high-value, high, highly reimbursed specialty care. And, you know, there's not an immense loyalty that, boy, oh, boy, this is where I'm, I get my flu shot. That's where I got to get my transplant. So what you, you will see is the people that own emergency encounters will find an incredible correspondence of loyalty to that system in terms of their ultra specialty care. Those convenient care encounters don't always grow market share of desired services, but emergency room encounters do. It is a really important entry point and driver of some of those desired growth segments. In order to be the acute diagnostic center of the future, it needs to be the place where you get the test. And you transition from a model of you come to the emergency room, they gave you pain medicine, and then they try to schedule you an outpatient this or an outpatient that, you know, and you think about what that means from a patient's time perspective. If I tried to get a workup for back pain and migrated through five or six different care sites with MRIs and pain, you are in an outpatient setting in the emergency room. And more and more people are realizing this is where I get that outpatient test. And I think as we start to get site-neutral payments for some diagnostic tests and care encounters, you're going to start to see a real sense of, I got all my tests done in the emergency room, not because I had to have those tests uh, for the purposes of saving my life or making sure that my life wasn't in jeopardy, but just for the sheer patient satisfaction of efficiencies of pulling all those diagnostic tests together. So you act and behave like the patient's time has value as well. 
Well, I think I think setting positive and, and realistic expectations is really the key. That if you're building a system that can do a lot of those things that Marty was just discussing in terms of being uh, all-encompassing of care, then that's great. Uh, then we'd be able to set the appropriate expectations. And then providing care in a compassionate way that's culturally sensitive and understands concepts of equity is really the next evolution of, of emergency medicine as well as our overall healthcare system. Emergency medicine is one of those areas where uh, our, our score is the patient. Uh, we are in a, ca- a case where our score is not ex- exactly objective. The operational performance of your system, to a large extent from a satisfaction perspective, permeates the satisfaction on all fronts. If you make a patient wait a very long time to get their perceived emergency care, the doctor is not smart, the nurse is not nice, and the space is not comfortable. And I do you know, a lot of consulting in improving patient satisfaction, and most of the time I attack it by attacking the operational dynamics. If you look at patient satisfaction scores and you say, we have horrible patient satisfaction scores, and one of the areas that patients are incredibly unhappy with is the comfort our waiting room. And I'll see people putting in saltwater aquariums, moving in new, new couches, But I always remind them, if you are a long wait ER and you eliminate that wait, which of the patient satisfaction scores goes up the most when you eliminate that wait? It is not the satisfaction with the wait time that goes up. What goes up the most when you eliminate wait in emergency rooms is the waiting room gets comfortable. It's important to understand in emergency medicine, we're incredibly fortunate. We have a leading indicator and the leading indicator in in emergency medicine is time to dock. Time to dock for all of the low acuity patients drive all your satisfaction metrics. Working on addressing that time to care providers is is a really foundational component, uh, you know, to addressing satisfaction. Twenty years ago, it was about you know, patient satisfaction, and then it became about patient or customer delight. So, are we going after patient delight model, which is incredibly expensive, or is it more ab- about the e-commerce post e-commerce? mentality of get in, get out, get on with your life uh, and really trying to move things along. What they're after these days and, and the shift of this mentality has really moved towards let's get throughput down and let's get patients what they want and get them back to their life uh, versus the extraordinary efforts that it goes to take to delight patients and, and customers overall. And let's get people back to their lives. That system would certainly benefit the patient, and it certainly seems like a better use of resources and more cost-effective for an organization. Marty, given current reimbursement models, how can organizations make those kinds of changes? Some of the transformation in national healthcare policy and reimbursement models really actually has, uh, you know, sort of stemmed the tide of growth of emergency room uh, encounters. The more you get to risk, the more you get to capitation, the more the health system as a whole starts to take on the the payer perspective and starts to optimize in a manner where there is system and provider centric emphasis on getting people to care settings that are of lower cost than the emergency room moving risk over to the provider, getting to capitation so that it is in the provider's best interest to have low-cost care settings available and route patients towards those care settings is globally optimum for the, the broader health community. 
reimbursement is a powerful vehicle to to change behavior. There are a lot of advantages to some of the trans the, the transformations we're seeing in reimbursement. I use the DRG model as a good example of of how incentive changes care patterns and changes behavior. You know, 30 years ago, the thought of somebody going home in three to five days after having a heart attack seemed like an incredibly unreasonable concept. Change the DRG and there was an incentive. You know, people weren't being compensated on a per diem basis model and instead of rolling it up into a DRG. And all of a sudden you saw healthcare providers found a way to get that same care encounter shrunk into a three to five day window. We're going to start to see the same things in bundle payment, and you're going to start to see the same implications as we start to get to capitated reimbursement models. Uh, Necessity is the mother of invention, and I think those changes in reimbursement are going to lead to good and beneficial changes in care patterns, uh, you know, with time. The other thing that you're starting to see is there's 5 or 10% of their patient population that is absorbing huge amounts of the healthcare resources. And so you're seeing a real migration towards development of patient guiders, patient navigators, and community resources, so and care coordinators who put a, an extra emphasis on those 5% of patients who are high consumers and really trying to do all that they can by routine visits, follow-up calls, home health visits, all of those things, even then attacking some of the social factors, i.e., uh, you know, transportation, uh, access to housing. So it's real important to understand that financial viability on the acute care facility side is a dominant effect of, you know, where you run occupancy on the inpatient side and, and subsequently, you know, what factors are creating a natural outflow obstruction from the emergency room and, and, and really backing people up and compromise or challenge or steal, you know, resources away from the provision of emergency care. Thank you, Tom and Marty, for your insights. Join us for the next episode of Emergency Medicine of the Future, which will highlight social determinants of health and scope of practice. And thank you for listening to our podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at knowledgetransfer at vizianinc.com. From the PI Collaborative and Knowledge Transfer teams, I'm Marilyn Sherrill. Remember, knowledge is transformational. Share it. Share it.